Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Big thank you to Dan Gilbert, Kobe Altman, LeBron James, and everyone else who was responsible for uh, the bloodletting in Cleveland, the overhaul of that roster. Because if that hadn't happened today, if we had had this quiet trade deadline that some people were worried about, we were a little bit agonizing over. I know you had another 35 minutes of hamster emails uh, and cat, dog talk all lined up for us. And you lost all perspective after that last episode in terms of how interesting some of that was. So I am really glad Cleveland is here to bring the perspective back and to give us oodles of uh stuff to analyze here over the next hour or so you know what i apologize for nothing we record two hours of nba talk every week excuse me if i didn't want to run through marcus smart rumors on monday uh (laughs) but you're right that i think both you and i all week long we were talking about this we're saying this is going to be kind of a quiet deadline if anything it was awkward because at this point there's so much media dedicated to covering the NBA that like every outlet has these blowout trade deadline specials. And I was just kind of dreading it because it's just like, what do you do when nothing happens? And we even with the Cavs, we were talking about them the last couple of weeks. And it's like, you know, I don't I didn't think that there was a move out there that could sort of change the direction of where this season was going for them. And then lo and behold, King Kobe comes through I mean I was baffled by how well the Cavs did today so I feel like we could we should start there and honestly we could just spend the next 20 or 30 minutes talking about what this means for Cleveland because there are a lot of layers to it obviously they opened up cap space for LA that's one of the funniest parts of this to me is like that first Cavs Lakers trade trickled in and then on Twitter everyone spent the next 30 minutes making fun of the Cavs for basically opening up space for LeBron to to leave this summer. And it was just kind of like LOL Cavs. And then suddenly the other dominoes start to fall. And I don't know, man, that Cleveland roster looks a lot better than it did 24 hours ago. Yeah, so before we get to the Lakers angle of it, the overreaction, the overhyped reactions were crazy. I mean, everybody was burying Kobe Altman as an inexperienced GM at like what? you know, noon Eastern and by one thirty, uh, he had arisen <laughs> and he was the new, he, he was the new savior. I mean, come on guys. Like, well, uh, just ease up you know a little what? bit and here. I, I think there start, is a, some truth to that with Kobe there though, because I'm really happy for that guy because he has had to sort of live through the last six months of chaos and every other anonymously sourced report. Like every week there's a new report about how, powerless he is and who knows what's true and what's not but I'm happy for him that he was able to save face because he was thrown into one of the more thankless situations possible and this was like his dream job and yet it was also a complete nightmare for the last four or five months so I'm happy that he was able to sort of like get get some wins back get some dignity back it's it's a it's a good day for Kobe Altman Yeah, I mean, I I think there is some truth, though, to the mixed reactions that he was getting as the day unfolded. Because if you look at the two separate deals, uh, I kind of like that George Hill deal that they did more than like the terms on the Clarkson, 
uh, Nance deal that they did with the Lakers. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of exulting towards Kobe Altman. I don't think we should just brush everything into one stroke and say you hit a home run. I think there's things you can sure. nitpick. But I agree with your broader point, which is I thought he made the right deal with Isaiah Thomas for Kyrie Irving at the time. I think it was a very logical move. It was the best point guard available. He got a really valuable draft asset in a wing that made sense. Uh, everything fell apart over the next six months, but I thought he made the right deal with the right motivation at that time, which is send the message to LeBron that you're serious about building a winner around him and that if someone doesn't want to be there, you know, you don't want them in your house. I mean, that was sort of his introductory message when he got the job last summer, right? And like you mentioned, yeah. thrown into a very difficult situation. Kobe Altman delivered the same message again here at the trade deadline. He told LeBron, I'm going to try to put a contention-worthy team around you. I know a lot of these pieces haven't worked out. I know there's some real loose lips uh, going on in that Cleveland locker room who are, <laughs> you know, empty, uh, you know, uh, just excess baggage, if you will, and emotional baggage. He cleared a lot of those guys out uh, in the series of moves, and he brings in uh, a group of players who I think actually fit pretty well around LeBron and what the Cavs want to be. Uh, you look at Rodney Hood, not ball dominant, you know, a guy who can play off of LeBron James. The, the tussles over the ball between LeBron and Isaiah just never got resolved. Uh, you know, unfortunately, right. uh, that's very disappointing. Uh, you take that move out uh, with LeBron. In Jordan Clarkson, you got, have a guy who can create a shot, but he's not, he doesn't think he's a max player like Isaiah did. I think he's going to understand say, his, his role know, a little bit better. Thinking through Jordan Clarkson in Cleveland, he is is just a better version of what Isaiah Thomas should have been for the Cavs. Like Isaiah should have uh, been a twenty to twenty five minute player off the bench, and at least this version of Isaiah, and that's what Clarkson can be. He's and he's also healthy and he's not good on defense, but he's not like apocalyptically bad. And uh, so I think the fit makes a lot more sense. And you're right. I mean, we could do we could talk about Isaiah later. Like the Isaiah situation could not possibly have gone worse. And and I think salvaging it with with Clarkson and Larry Nance is a huge win. Yeah, and they were clearly searching for the energy that Nance brings. And then you look at the combination of. George Hill and Hood and sort of your defensive ceiling as a team, which was obviously their big issue that everybody's been harping on for months and months, your ceiling uh, or even your floor as a team when you have those two guys you can plug into lineups is is vastly improved. And now, you know, your best lineup that you can throw out there isn't just an offense only unit. You actually have some balance, uh, which I think is going to create some separation now, as long as they can get these pieces together and rolling between Cleveland and, and some of these other uh, Eastern Conference uh, contenders. But uh, in terms of like Clarkson's fit and the terms on that Lakers trade, I didn't love it because... Clarkson's not as good as he thinks he is offensively, and then defensively mm-hmm. he is he is pretty bad. Now look, he's not Isaiah Thomas just being a turnstile like he was over these last couple of weeks. I actually think you had a tweet about Isaiah essentially trying to Costanza his way out of Cleveland, and I think that was <laughs> happening off the court with his comments, but it was happening yeah. on the court too. I mean, it was really, really brutal. Uh, Clarkson will be an upgrade over that. Uh, and then in terms of Nance, he's going to be able to be a finisher for LeBron on offense. Uh, I do worry he might get in the way at times offensively. Um, and then, you know, defensively, I think uh, we'll, we'll see exactly how important he is. Uh, but certainly he's a live body, a little bit more athletic than, you know, what Channing Fry was sort of bringing to the table in some of those reserve minute roles. So um, I think if you're LeBron, 
you're probably patting yourself on the back and you're feeling like the biggest winner of the trade deadline because all it took was three really dark weeks of sort of half-hearted effort and lots of turnovers and ugly losses before uh, your management and your ownership decided, hey, we got to go all in for this guy. And rather than sitting it out, rather than trying to call LeBron's bluff, they did. <laughs> they, they made multiple moves geared at improving their short-term outlook. Uh, and that is exactly what LeBron wants in the end, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, another thing that I joked about on Twitter is it kind of felt like the Cavs strategy at the deadline was to say, look, let's just trade everyone who's 30, 30 years and older. And that's one of the reasons I love this this deadline for them so much. Because I like watching Cleveland the past few weeks, obviously there were all kinds of bigger questions about where LeBron was going to go, who was to blame for what's going wrong, wh- like what was Ty Lue's role. There were so many different layers to it. But at a baseline level, I was just sick of watching this team and I was dreading watching them for the next three months and having the same Cavs discussions over and over and over again. And now it's like, there's some real life there and it like throw in Larry Nance, who's probably 24 years old, Jordan Clarkson, who's about the same age, Rodney hood, who's in his prime. Like these guys can move a little bit. And, uh, and I think that's what they needed more than anything is just some guys who are actually still in their prime and can hang with guys, hang with teams every night. I, I don't know if this really moves the needle that much in a potential Warriors series because the Warriors are impossible, but it definitely makes the next three months in Cleveland a lot more exciting to think about. Well, two thoughts. First of all, I do think it moves the needle at least somewhat because now you actually have a legit on-ball defensive player in George Hill that you just didn't have. And that was just well, going to be at a least mur- in murderous and nightmare uh, scenario for them going into that finals. They just had nobody in that role. So that helps. Sure. And then I think an extra wing defender who is actually playing well in Hood is an upgrade over the trash pile that they've been throwing out there. Uh, you know, whether it's J.R. Smith, Shumper, Crowder's been terrible for them this year. Um, That's actually much one mo- question I had. Do you do you think yeah. this means that J.R. Smith is no longer a starter? Because that his role, I've, I've talked about all the different layers of dysfunction in Cleveland. J.R. Smith has been really, really bad this year. And he was uncomfortable coming off the bench early on in the year, I think. I mean, there was some a little bit of drama there. And I, I like looking at this deal, I like the Cavs so much more if suddenly Rodney Hood is the guy playing 30 minutes a game and J.R. Smith is coming off for 20 minutes a game. Do you think that's realistic at all? Well, look, I mean, they're going to juggle their lineups. They've been doing it all season long. But if you're saying who's your best five to throw against the Warriors, there's no question George Hill and Rodney Hood are going to be part of that five, at least to me, and just in terms of their skill sets and their two-way games. Because uh, this strategy that they were trying to do of just like playing all offense and just hoping that, you know, JR would have one of those nights and uh, and everything else kind of gets swept under the rug was just not going to work against Golden State. So I think who's going to play a more important role in a potential final series, J.R. Smith or Rodney Hood? Uh, to me, the answer is Rodney Hood. But here's the other point I wanted to make. Okay. Let's put some pressure on LeBron's shoulders here, okay? Because he had some pretty good pieces coming in uh, at the start of the year. Now, they didn't work out. A lot of them didn't work out. And it's it's a little bit suspicious when you have a whole bunch of guys underperforming for various reasons, all when they get attached to that Cleveland environment, right? At some point, you wonder, 
is LeBron in this sort of role like, you know, what Russell Westbrook gets criticized for, where he's sucking up a little bit too much oxygen. And even though he's such a great playmaker for his teammates, maybe he's not actually putting everyone in position to succeed. He's got an entirely new batch of teammates right now, guys who have been having decent seasons across the board, whether it's Clarkson, uh, whether it's Nance, whether it's Hood. Uh, and, you know, Hill hasn't been great, but, you know, he should certainly have more motivation than playing in just the backwater of all backwaters in Sacramento where you've got nothing to play for. All those guys are kind of proven NBA commodities. It's on LeBron to not only integrate these guys into what Cleveland's doing quickly, but to really get a lot out of them. If they're all underperforming again, uh, I don't think we can be in this situation where a lot of people are blaming Isaiah, uh, you know, blaming mm-hmm. Jay Crowder down on these individual guys. If that happens again here down the stretch where they're just not producing at the level people expect, at some point LeBron shares some of the blame for that. And that's why I think there's pressure on him to pull this together you know, pretty quickly, number one, but also pull together in a way where uh, everybody's eating. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair point. And we should be careful because... One of the things with the Cavs and with LeBron's teams is when it looks like things are going well, suddenly everything seems possible and everything seems great. Like the highs with LeBron are so high and the lows are so low. And so I don't want to get too high. And you could absolutely play devil's advocate with this trade, uh, with this series of trades and say Rodney Hood is decent, but I, th- I think the idea of Rodney Hood is probably better than what Rodney Hood has actually been over the last few years, particularly when you factor in health. George Hill is definitely someone who w- is much better in theory than he, he actually is on the court. And I don't think that he is going to be that much of a factor for the Cavs. I could be wrong, but like he hasn't really been that great in three years and, and has been legitimately a non-entity in Sacramento. Uh, I, 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 Nance is my favorite guy that they got from, uh, from LA. And I think that he will give them a little bit of athleticism that they sorely need right now, but you could absolutely sort of be, you could, you could short the Cavs stock today and you wouldn't be wrong. That's not an unreasonable place to be. I think your your point about LeBron though, go ahead. I was gonna, I was gonna say the best counter to everything that we've been saying to go along with your your sort of you know zig when other people zag is that all of this is very desperate. <laughs> you know, I mean that's the <laughs> argument is that look, LeBron's been upset. Everyone knows it. He's been putting out you know all these possible different situations, the Warriors rumors, and all this. And the front office responded by gambling on Larry Nance with a history of injuries, Rodney Hood with a history of injuries. Uh, uh, George, George Hill, Hill with the history of injuries and, you know, Jordan Clarkson with the history of sort of being a below average, uh, yeah. you know, like guard who can't, really, Williams. who can't really hold down a starting spot. And also part of that desperation is just cutting bait with everyone that you had talked yourself into six months ago. So I, the Cavs skeptics out there, uh, that would be a fun island to be on because, you know, there's always a chance this won't work and it would be kind of funny for them to watch this uh, fail. But I guess my, my take on the whole thing is I'd rather watch this because it's new and different and because there are some signs of life than watch what we've been watching for the last two months. Absolutely. And I'm a hundred percent with you. And I do think it will work. I think even watching against watching the, the Cavs against the Wolves Wednesday night where LeBron went nuts and reminded everybody that he is still 
completely unfair. He had the block on Jimmy Butler before the game winner. I mean, the dude is absolutely ridiculous. So LeBron Lehner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I I think that LeBron, when he's engaged, is still capable of taking any team to the finals. And I, I think one of the problems in Cleveland over the last two months is he looked around the roster and saw that things were so hopeless and so dire that he sort of shut off a little bit and disengaged. And so the Cavs were not only working with a, a roster full of old guys who weren't interested in playing de- defense and probably couldn't play defense even if they wanted to, but also they were dealing with LeBron who was giving like 60% efforts most nights. And now I think bring in a, a cast of guys who actually look look like they can, they've certainly, the Cavs certainly look like the favorites in the East again. Uh, you're going to get a different version of, Le- of LeBron over the final two months of the year. And that alone, I think, will be enough to make this work. And and LeBron at his best can can make almost any supporting cast look better than they actually are. So as far as yeah. your question, that's that's how I think this will go. One other thought related is I don't think Isaiah did enough to kiss the ring for LeBron. You know, Kyrie yeah. might have kissed it in sort of a fake fashion, but I think a big part of why LeBron wasn't happy was because uh he and Isaiah didn't find that balance at all. And I will be the first to admit, I thought it was going to work out a lot better offensively, especially in Cleveland, uh, that that role for Isaiah than it did. And personally, I consider Isaiah's free fall here, including the injury problems, to be the biggest surprise uh, of the entire season. And I, I think he's just in a situation where his his life has changed so dramatically over these last two years in terms of who he was as a player, what his earning power was supposed to be, now back where it is. And I think he just, you know, he went into Cleveland with this nonstop, uh, you know, videography going on off the court about his every move. He's he's trying to release these like, you know, letters and all these different things. I mean, treating himself like he's a top five player and that's not who he was. And so I think ultimately removing Isaiah Thomas from this situation and removing any tension there was over the ball, like his agent mentioned today, or just the obvious like, hey, you know, why isn't Isaiah kind of fitting in around LeBron like he's supposed to? Removing that stuff from Cleveland, I think, is going to be a, a major turning point for LeBron's effort level and his mood. And look, we knew he was going to try harder anyway down the stretch. I mean, LeBron's too prideful of a player. Uh, you know, I think he toys with us sometimes in terms of his effort level during the season to kind of exact exactly what he wants out of his front office and his organization. Uh, and I think, right. you know, again, he did it brilliantly here. And you know, the surprise side for Isaiah now is, okay, you're battling with Lonzo in a stylistic <laughs> struggle for control of the Lakers. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers don't just keep riding with Lonzo. So what does that mean for Isaiah going forward uh, this summer, whether it's his free agency value or where he lands? Again, again, to me, that's like the biggest surprise of the 2017-18 season by a lot is this Isaiah Thomas experience. <sighs> It's hard, man. <laughs> it's not fun to talk about how does that... Actually, can we talk about Danny Ainge for a second? Like, what is his deal? What what dark arts is he practicing? Because when you were talking about how bad Isaiah's season has been and, like, the shocking downward spiral, the only other comparable, as far as NBA stories, is concerned is Markel Fultz. And real and and also Jay Crowder is another guy who has really fallen off hard. Although I guess Utah believes in his future. Um, I mean, it's 
it's dark, and I don't know what the Celtics are doing, who Danny Ainge sold his soul to, but it feels like some of these players are just cursed. Yeah, I think that was kind of a nice buy-low move by the Jazz. I mean, clearly they're thinking we don't want to commit to Hood, and you know that that to me is kind of a question mark because he was been one of their better players, I guess, over these last couple of years. But he'd struggled finding his role, and with injuries, they moved him around starter, sixth yeah. man. He didn't really firm it, uh, firm it up there. And so, if you get Crowder locked in on a pretty cheap price, and you hope that you know this egalitarian offensive system that they they use in Utah, which maybe is a little bit more similar to what Boston had going last year, will sort of put Crowder in a better position to succeed. Um, I could see their it's motivation not a bad deal for wanting because- to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they were in a spot where they said, look, we don't want to pay $5 million or $10 million a year for Rodney Hood. And I wonder, I mean, whether it's something behind the scenes with Hood or whether they have just lived through so many three-week ankle sprains with Rodney Hood that they were like, we don't want to continue on this cycle. And And Crowder is locked into a really solid deal, and he's going to be able to help them and, and just basically be sort of a placeholder for them so it makes sense but uh but going back like going back to the isaiah side of it and this and we don't have to talk about whether danny ainge is a witch but uh but the isaiah side is pretty staggering you know like i i I can't imagine a way this could have gone worse and you're right that it's going to be it's going to continue to be uncomfortable in Los Angeles, there are already conflicting reports about whether he's going to start or not. I think his agent told Ra- Rachel Nichols that he expects to start. And e- even if you spin it forward to this summer, I don't know who is going to be looking to pay money for this version of Isaiah. Like I couldn't, I can't see him getting more than a couple million dollars a year, which really bums me out. Uh, but I think it's it's strictly a health thing at this point. Like he's not the same guy. Yeah. And, you know, he could get back. You, you never know how long these things would take. Uh, to me, I don't want to blame Isaiah for what happened in Cleveland. I know he's kind of a, a popular scapegoat at this point, but to be mm-hmm. honest, I'm a little disappointed in him because there is a bargain that goes uh, along with playing with LeBron, right? Like you do have to, you know, get, get down on your knees every once in a while and kind of like praise the king, right? But at the same time, yeah. you get a chance to compete for a title. He was theoretically playing on the best team he'd ever played for. This was going to be his opportunity to, uh, you know, get to the finals for the first time in his career. And when you compare that opportunity to what he was dealing with in Sacramento when he first came up or Phoenix when he was there and and the situations, you know, turned pretty sour in both of those spots. And uh, especially after all of the chirping and just the over the top, like star making that he was trying to go through during his uh, uh, during his injury absence and, and the ballyhoo that he had around his arrival and his return to Cleveland, for him to kind of go out like this and to have that Cavaliers uh, tenure be so short and so unremarkable and so full of drama and you know poor play on the court, it's disappointing. You know, it's just very, very disappointing. And I think, you know, you hate to say this, but I wouldn't be surprised at all five, 10 years from now if he looks back on that tenure, this stretch of his career and just says, look, it was a really emotional time in my life. I let it get away from me, and I probably could have done better. That's what it looks like from the outside. Well, yeah, I think that stylistically, he and Braun were always going to be kind of an awkward fit. Even if he were 100% healthy, it was a 50-50 bet as far as whether that was going to work for, for Cleveland in particular, because Cleveland needed guys who could guard around LeBron, and that's not Isaiah. Um 
But as far as where his game is now, it's funny. Like, as you were talking, I, I remembered something a scout told me a couple years ago. And he was actually talking about Dwayne Wade. But he was saying the hardest guys for anybody to coach are the former superstars who, are, who lose 20% of their athleticism but don't really realize it and still think that they're, they're, they're the same player and still try to take all the impossible shots that they used to hit and you just can't really get through to them that they need to adapt. And I don't blame them for feeling that way. Like I don't blame Isaiah for feeling like he is a superstar because that's how he had played the last few years in Boston. But it's one of those things where he's going to have to find a way to evolve if he's going to sort of turn turn a corner. I mean, he's probably not going to be in LA for more than a month or two, um, but turn a corner somewhere else because I, I don't think this is this is not how anybody wants the Isaiah Thomas story to end. But man, it's it's bleak right now. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing, what the scout said, sounds a lot like post Achilles, Kobe, and now yeah, look totally. where Isaiah has landed. You know, he'll fit right into a seamless transition into that role for Isaiah Thomas. No, I have a question for you though. I mean, if if the Lakers, you know, clearly they accomplished a major goal. You offload Jordan Clarkson's contract. Now you have the two max slots. Now you're open for business completely for all the A-list free agents this summer. That was what you wanted to do. And by the way, you add a first-round pick, which is a nice move. And another reason why I think we should dock Kobe Altman a little bit in terms of his overall day, because uh, not a lot of first-round picks uh, moved. And to give one up for you know two guys who aren't major impact-type players, uh, basically almost to dump Isaiah, uh, you know that's that's a little rough to me. But um, if they can't land their top targets, you know, with those two max slots. Is LA's backup plan just the IT show and see what happens? Um, <laughs> I don't think that's a very good backup plan. I hope not. I think Palinka and Magic are smarter than that and smarter than betting. Uh, I mean, I don't know what they what they would give Isaiah Thomas in that scenario. It is. It, it's been a funny Lakers week though because it started on Tuesday with Woj and Ramona uh, reporting that the Lakers were were starting to recalibrate and and look toward the summer of 19 which part of me read that and said that's actually a smarter way to play this and you guys should just sort of be careful don't go all in on LeBron and go go all in on Paul George a couple things happened though since since Tuesday number one Tuesday night Paul George went out and lit up the Warriors and looked like one of the six or seven best players in the NBA. That was an awesome performance from him. The other thing that happened was Wednesday night, LeBron went out against the Wolves and reminded everybody that he's the best player on earth. And so now maybe I maybe the summer of 18 makes more sense for the Lakers. Like those guys still have plenty left. And if they're able to hold on to Ingram and Lonzo and some some of the the younger pieces they have. Josh Hart has looked pretty good the last week or two. Uh, Kuzma, I it's starting to look like the future is bright for LA too. Um, and you know, I, nobody ever has any idea what the hell the Lakers are trying to do. But uh, this was another. They, they are the other big winners today. I think. Yeah, no, no question. I mean, you like their move, whether or not they can compete for those free agents uh, or not, because you get the first round pick, you get the expiring contracts, you get the flexibility, and then you potentially have the ability to 
if somehow the Isaiah Thomas experiment works, then, you know, he is a star you can sell to a fan base that needs that star power constantly that, you know, just pumped through its veins. And uh, most likely <laughs> Isaiah is going to be coming more cheaply you, than he would a year ago. Yeah, I think listening to you talk about the potential of long-term Isaiah Thomas in L.A. is probably driving Lakers fans insane right now because it that's just like he's he's not the answer for a team that wants to compete for a title right now. And we we, we kind of just have to be real about that. They're competing for a title. I mean, let's let's get them to 500 first. I mean, come on. <laughs> All right, fair enough, I guess. I just think No, I mean I think everyone wants to say, "Oh, the Lakers are going to take off." It's I think the Lakers do think they're competing for a title. That's and whether that's crazy or not is a, is a separate issue, but I think that's where that's where Magic and Belinka are and that's where like a nation of irrational Lakers fans have been for the last few years. Well, look, a fully healthy Isaiah Thomas is be- a better player than they've had in five seasons. You know what I mean? And if they could have yeah. got him one year ago in a, in a trade over the summer, if they could have traded for Isaiah Thomas, Lakers fans would have welcomed him with open arms. And obviously a lot has changed over those last eight months. But uh, I'm just saying the way uh, we should view their trade deadline is that sort of all options are on the table. They get a little test period with Isaiah. If he comes in and he doesn't fit because, you know, this is Lonzo's show and he doesn't want to like... Uh, you know, subjugate himself to a rookie who hasn't really done anything and has been injured for a good chunk of the season. I would understand that from Isaiah's uh, standpoint, no question. That's a little bit more defensible than uh, not being able to fit in around LeBron James. Uh, And if he parts ways, you know, that's fine. But, uh, you know, if you're the Lakers, like, you're nowhere near a title. Come on, guys. You know, you're desperate (laughs) for talent. If you're able to salvage Isaiah Thomas and, and get him back healthy, I mean, that's that's a real player potentially for your future. That's all I'm saying. You don't have to build the whole show around them. You know, still take your chances on LeBron and Paul George, but it could be a potential backup option. Yes. I, I don't want to be mean to either you or Isaiah Thomas, but I think that that's a crazy take. I don't think that Isaiah is in the long-term picture in any scenario for them. However, well, where do you see him landing? That's, that's kind of the awkward question that's hanging there. I don't, I don't know really. Um, I don't think he's going back to Phoenix. Although, speaking of Phoenix, one thing that I noticed this week with the Lakers, Brandon Ingram went off against the Suns earlier this week, and uh, it just seems like every time the Lakers play the Suns, one of their prospects comes away looking much better than they have at, at in any other game this year. Like, earlier this year, it was Lonzo. The Lakers should play the Suns more often because it, it makes their future look much brighter than it probably is in real life, but... um yeah, I, the well, Isaiah question I mean, is er- tough. Everybody should play the Suns more often. They're terrible. <laughs> yeah, They've been horrible dude, for years. And the they put them game. on national TV, and they, they get doubled up 100 to 50. I mean, give me a break. The Spurs, that, was, that was amazing. On Wednesday night, this, the at coming off like the euphoria of the LeBron comeback against the Wolves, the o- OT game winner, like LeBron and Jimmy Butler going shot for shot, and then they suddenly it's Sun Spurs, and the Suns are down forty, and you're just like, "Holy shit, is this the same sport? What is happening here?" No, I mean I was ready for like Ettore Messina and uh, you know their other Spurs assistant coaches to be out there with clipboards and whistles because that looked like a practice. I mean they weren't even playing that hard. The Spurs were just like jogging through it and just running up. I mean it was like a community college opponent, and we have to pretend like Phoenix deserves to be on ESPN. I mean come on. Did you see how Pop uh, stopped coaching in the second half and let one of his assistants be head coach for for the fourth quarter? Yeah, that's a classic pop trick. And 
Look, I, what I like about uh, Popovich, by the way, is in 2014, he got into this big argument with Suns over uh, owner Robert Sarver because he sat out his stars during a preseason game and Sarver, um, yeah. you know, opted to basically uh, call him out and, and say he was going to give his fans refunds for all that. Since then, the Spurs smoke the Suns consistently. <laughs> and look, I, I want to say they're like 13-2, which I was actually surprised it wasn't 15-0 and 0 since those comments were made. But, you know, Pop called Sarver a clown show. And to me, no truer words have ever been spoken. And we're reminded of it on a regular basis. All right. Well, let's move past sun spurs let's move past the Cavs. actually should we talk about Dwayne wade in miami because i think that is the the one element that we didn't hit i think this Oof. is better off for cleveland i i'm happy for i'm happy for Dwayne wade going home and i also think that now the Cavs are not in the awkward position of having to find 20 minutes for Dwayne wade every night like really it should be jr smith who plays 20 minutes and and then go with the guys that they just picked up to, to soak up those extra minutes. Um, and, and Wade, no, Wade in Miami is fine. No, I like how you phrase that. I mean, if the Cavs can't find 20 minutes for him, I mean, we can barely find 20 minutes for him. We went half an hour without even mentioning his name <laughs> <laughs> on a day where he gets traded. I mean, this is supposed to be, you know, future hall of famer, first ballot type of guy. And he's, you know, got this really emotional, uh, homecoming reunion. I mean, I think that does sum up, you know, his relative importance uh, to the Cavaliers. And it's one more guy who just was not going to match up very well against Golden State in the finals. That was very apparent, you know, on Christmas uh, when he's not getting back on defense in the fourth quarter. I mean, come on. I mean, you can't be in that situ- that situation and, and you know, kind of playing with that, uh, you know, uh, ankle weight, you know, tied around you, uh, dragging you down if you're LeBron. In terms of... Uh, you know, the reunion, though, I mean, that was something that I started to hear whispers about all the way back, you know, three quarters of the way through his Chicago the tenure Bulls run. Yeah, you, were, you yeah. were throwing that out on the podcast, too. And so here it is. And if you're Miami, like you got it at a big discount, you didn't have to deal with the whole buyout that Chicago had to. And again, props to Gar Foreman. I mean, totally mismanaging that situation, you know, biting the bullet and, and paying the huge <laughs> money for him. Uh, and then if, if you're Pat Riley, head. absolutely. Yeah. If you're Pat Riley, you also win because you avoided the potential conflict that was very obvious between Dwayne Wade and Deion Waiters. Like if they had just signed Wade to start the season, this was supposed to be Waiters' team. Oh, it's going to get so ugly. It's going to be dramatic. It's going to be a fight for who's the face of the team, who gets the shots. But Waiters is out of the picture now with the injury. Boom, you plug in Wade on uh, the short term, you know, uh, you know, rental or whatever you want to call it. And uh, you get to sell a few more jerseys. You get a nice uh, few moments. If you make the playoffs, you're going to have a few, uh, you know, fun home games. I mean, I think from the Heat standpoint, uh, it's it's remarkable how quickly Wade's animosity and, and hurt feelings uh, went away. And I think yeah. it's also remarkable how quickly uh, Cleveland was to move on from him. And I think that might say something about, you know, internal dynamics, frankly, don't you think? I mean, I think just being LeBron's buddy, might not be enough to uh, overweigh everything else uh, in the situation right now. Yeah, and I also think it probably says something about the relationship that LeBron and Wade have that where they were both able to sort of come to an understanding that this was the best thing and it doesn't seem like there was that much drama. Maybe I'm reading too much into the magnanimous Instagram post from LeBron after the trade went went final, but it does seem like Everybody is is okay with the way this worked out, uh, which is good to see, you know? And it, the one thing that you mentioned, it, the idea that this was ever supposed to be Dion Waiters' team in Miami 
was crazy when it happened, but it's also something that, like, as the years pass, will look more and more crazy. Like, I really like the Heat team that they have. I watched them fight and claw up to a near comeback win against Orlando the other night. And, like, the Heat are not that great. We've been over this, but they are so much fun to watch. But, uh, man, like, their future would make so much more sense if that Waiters deal had just never happened. Yeah, and, you know, what happens next for Wade? I think that's an open question here, too. I mean, should this be it? Uh, you know, well, right off into the sunset, you, you get your, you, you return home to Miami, Wade County. Uh, you know, it's clear <laughs> at this point, you know, his impact is limited. I mean, how many more years do you think Wade's got in the tank? Uh, it's It's been a pretty precipitous decline here over the last two seasons in terms of his usefulness. It didn't look like he was having a lot of fun in Cleveland. If you're Miami, you know, is it tricky with him and Waiters going forward into the future? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, uh, is it crazy to say this is goodbye time uh, this summer? Yeah. I mean, you threw out an idea offline to me that I really like. I think I think Wade goes to China next year. And I mean, he's already signed with Li Ning, the sneaker company over there. He gets paid $15 million to play basketball in China for a year. And so I think NBA retirement is on the horizon, but it would be fun to watch him go be like a superstar in Shanghai for a year. Can you get Gabby and the kids over there? I mean, that is a real factor here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was awful excited to, <laughs> to head back to the 305, and we can't blame her, can we? It is. It's a win for Gabby. Um, all right, so let's move on, though, to the other deals that did and didn't happen. What do you think about no Tyreek Evans to the Celtics? I mean, whatever. I think in terms of the deals that didn't happen, <laughs> should, we, should we start with the Clippers? I mean, look, we can get back to that. But I actually think the Clippers, in terms of the moves that didn't make, were the, was the one that surprised me a little bit. Because first of all, I really wanted Kobe Altman to just go all in, trade that Nets pick for DeAndre Jordan, and just go for the for full overhaul. I can't believe it didn't happen. And then, uh, you know, simultaneously, they obviously, you know, did the... Uh, renegotiation and extension with Lou Williams and, you know, taking that piece off the table. I'm just curious, you know, after the dust settled from the Blake trade and then now their decision to sort of stamp out and chase a playoff spot, how are you feeling about the Clippers right now? Um, Well, I think when the Blake trade went down, you and I came on and talked about it. And one of the things I said was that we're going to find out exactly how much power Doc Rivers has in that organization. And I think the answer is that he still has some uh, because they they were in a great position to just sell off entirely. And they didn't do that. They weren't going to trade DeAndre Jordan for nothing, which is what I heard as early as last week. And then I heard it again and again this week is that, look, the, the Clippers are not just going to give this dude away. And, uh, and I, it sounds like that was sort of the same situation with Avery Bradley and they, they may be in a position where they want to do basically what the Celtics did the last few years, which is to say they, they want to compete for playoff spots. And then a lot of those guys come off the books in 2019, and uh, and then they'll sort of reevaluate from there where they want to go. The, the, the one thing that I wonder about is what they will do with DeAndre this summer because it still seems like he it it, to me it just makes so much more sense for him to opt in but he he hired an agent he's looking around like it it clearly is is looking to get paid somewhere and I hope that it's not the Clippers because I I like 
where the the team is headed and i don't want them to i don't want them to like sink in more and more money to to deandre uh the lou williams deal was fine i thought i like it was a good deal it was a little bit below market um for for lou williams but he's also he also gets to stay in la and be a star there which is a pretty awesome life so it seems like a win-win for both sides on that one yeah it seemed like the clippers were really smart at how they handled the lou williams situation realizing that the market was going to be depressed um you know pitching stability pitching the fun market pitching keeping a good thing going in a big role and you know really using everything that they had uh in their toolbox to get him to sign a deal that to me uh the first glance at it's like wow that's that's a, a smaller number than you would have expected for a guy kind of having a career year i mean usually those are the kind of guys who get crazy overpaid in the summer right and i yeah. wonder if the clippers are going to pursue sort of a similar strategy with deandre where they say okay we know you want to opt to opt out and we know you want multiple years but you know perhaps that max money is not out there for you we also know you love la we know you're comfortable as a starting center here you know your exact role and and you're going to have a chance to know who your teammates are around you here down the stretch uh and and maybe they can find a multi-year contract that actually isn't that crazy of a number where again they can keep themselves in this mix of like you know the top six seven in the western conference without totally breaking the bank or like over committing to deandre in some crazy long-term contract i mean if that's the way that like the cap dynamics play out league-wide where there just isn't that big like super crazy contract available for deandre uh, the Clippers, you know, could wind up, you know, be using this money ball approach that we talked about previously to kind of keep their best players. If that's how it goes, you know, I don't hate it. You know, I don't think it's, it doesn't really have a huge high ceiling, but there are worse alternatives. The the one player that neither, neither of us mentioned is Avery Bradley. And that's someone that I was definitely expecting to move. I wanted OKC to make a play for him and then Thursday morning I think it was Mark Stein who reported that the uh, Spurs were making a play for him it just seems like he at least he's another guy where like the idea of what he can do is alluring to really really good teams and uh, I don't know I I don't think he's going to help the Clippers that much but it would have been fun to see him in in a better situation well, so let me ask you this, because I know you were excited about that Thunder win over Golden State. And frankly, that was a very impressive performance, not only because of the Paul George slobbering that you did earlier, but just across the board. They played really, really well. Awesome. And some of their positional uh, matchups uh, or just stylistic matchups, you know, like Steven Adams just banging really hard inside, Russell Westbrook putting constant pressure on the defense, Paul George, you know, when he's got it going, like you mentioned, elite score. Um, they all came through in that game. And, you know, if you're Golden State, I don't know if you come away from that super nervous, but you're not totally, uh, you know, you're not feeling great about it. I mean, it wasn't right. like the the 4-0 and sweep last year where it was just comical every time those two teams took the court. Now, let me ask you this. Are the Thunder trade deadline losers because they didn't make that kind of move? Because a guy like Roddy Hood goes to Cleveland, they don't get him because Avery Bradley stays in LA. They don't get him. And you see, there maybe you can make the argument after that game, they're not as far away from Golden State as we thought. Uh, you know, maybe they're closer to Houston than we thought. Wouldn't this have been the time to kind of tool up a little bit and, and add some pieces to that rotation? Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like it. And granted, Sam Presti had a super limited war chest because he didn't really have first round picks to, to, to trade. I think the earliest pick he could have traded would have been a 2022 pick. And like the way Russ is going to age, I probably wouldn't deal that. Um, 
but the 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 Bradley fit is is tricky though because I think it's true that Avery Bradley has traditionally defended Steph Curry better than anybody in the league, but at the same time, if you're looking across teams, the the Thunder are the team that have that have been best at taking Steph out of his comfort comfort zone. And the way they do that is to they do it with size. They don't do it but with on ball defense. And they they bump him around screens. And that's the one thing about Avery Bradley that I think sometimes people forget is that he's actually like kind of small. So maybe they're better off just running Josh Huestis or I, I can't even say that guy's last name, but uh Houston. The, the, the fake first round pick from years ago that is finally materialized for the Thunder. I think that like that's the the they, that might be a better approach against the Warriors in that specific matchup. Um, but if I were, like, as I was looking at OKC's options, I was hoping that they could find a way to maybe steal Jonathan Simmons, maybe steal someone like Courtney Lee. Although Courtney Lee, he's due for another $30 million. And I, I think that's one of the other reasons OKC was in such an impossible spot is because, like, the, if Paul George really does come back, it, the, the team is going to be so expensive that they really can't afford to pay anybody but like their top four guys. And so that kind of like tied their hands a little bit. Yeah, well said. I mean, I agree. Like, you know, Robertson's a tough guy to replace, but, you know, a little jitterbug like Avery Bradley is like a totally different look. And yeah. It's probably not like the idea of Avery Bradley in Oklahoma City as that as that replacement piece is probably better than the actual um, final result would have been. Um, you know, I, some people like his offensive game a little bit more in terms of what he can do. I don't know how much he'd be able to do sort of off Westbrook. So I, I mean, I thought they should try to do something in terms of adding if they could, and maybe they still will in the buyout market. But um, I just thought. Hopes were raised so much after that Golden State win. I kind of expected them to pull the trigger on something because Presti's usually quite busy around the deadline. Uh, to yeah. see them not really do anything, uh, you know, not, didn't catch me off guard, but uh, it did make me raise my eyebrows a little bit. Yeah, it would have been more fun, honestly, in, in part because Avery Bradley's game is so strange. It would have been more fun to see how the Spurs use him because I would trust San Antonio to like turn back the clock a little bit and get Avery Bradley from two years ago and uh, make that work for the playoffs. But I think they would have had to give up probably someone like Danny Green and they weren't willing to do that. And so it just didn't happen. Um, But good because they shouldn't. I'd rather have Danny Green. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. But let's talk about Avery Bradley's old team because it, it is really interesting to me that the Celtics didn't give up. I understand keeping Marcus Smart. But if I were them, I would have traded that first round pick this year, their own first round pick, which is going to be like 27th or something or 28th. Why wouldn't you give that to Memphis for Tyreek Evans? Like they need that help off the bench and the window is open in the East. Granted, it's less open than it looked 24 hours ago, but like it's still up for grabs as far as a finals trip is concerned. And I, I just think, like, their bench has been so bad. Their offense is really, it, it just in general, not that great. And they could have used a shot in the arm here down the stretch. Well, let me ask you, it, is the window really open, or did they reach the same conclusion that they reached last year, which is we're still not good enough to beat Cleveland? I mean, if they're sitting on their hands and, uh, you know, we're all expecting them to do something kind of transformative and they don't do it, 
Mm-hmm. Um, what is their motivation for not cashing in those picks? Is it to just preserve their long-term outlook, which is obviously very bright given, you know, Danny Ainge's very careful stockpiling of young players and picks and all of that? Um, or is it an admission that, you know, they don't have a good positional matchup uh, for LeBron in a playoff series and they still would have that issue no matter how ugly it gets for Cleveland here over these last couple of weeks and, and how tricky it is for them to put the pieces together, uh, you know, down the stretch. You know, I think if I'm Boston, I'm still not totally convinced my window is open. And I realize Celtics fans and Celtics media members and the, the Celtics fans in the Celtics media probably feel differently. Uh, but I yeah. think their window might still be a year away. <laughs> nice little subtweet there. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, no, you're probably right. I, I think they they can be realistic. I just think that the cost would have been pretty minimal. I, I don't think that they're getting a difference maker at 27, I, I, especially when you look at some of the other young players they already have in their system and, and the way they develop D-League guys, the way they find like low-cost sort of free agents like Aaron Baines like they've they've demonstrated that they could do that over and over again and so at that point it's like all right let me let me flip this 27th or 28th pick and and get someone who can help make the next three months fun and that that to me is not only entertaining as a basketball fan but it actually sort of makes sense when you're planning the future because you just never you you have no idea what's going to happen and it doesn't really cost you anything is it possible that you're overrating Tyreek Evans a little bit based on it's his you know, definitely possible. popcorn stats? I mean, I think, I think th- look, that might be an issue. Yeah, I think not only am I overrating Tyreek Evans, but I also think I'm reacting to a couple clunker Celtics games that I've seen in the last month where I'm just like, they have to do something. And Greg Monroe is not enough, but maybe they'll find someone in the buyout market. It does feel like this this past week was sort of like a warning to Marcus Smart to make it clear that his value is probably not what he thinks it is uh, headed into restricted free agency because that was a guy like the Celtics were trying to sign him before the year started and like his agent was just his agent actually came out and, and warned the Celtics that like the next time they have negotiations, which is this summer, it's going to go far worse for them. And I don't think that's how it's going to play out for Marcus Smart. Nope. <laughs> Bluff called. <laughs> <laughs> Should have taken the deal in October. Not that it, I mean, it sucks for him. He's been, he's been fun for them. Um, although I, God, he, I love rooting against him. Um, all right. Other odds and ends here. And then we should talk Knicks at the end. Joe Johnson is a buyout candidate. He's being linked to the Rockets. What do you think of that fit? I mean, I always like when players who have just a little bit left get into a situation where they don't really have to do anything. I mean, I I thought that's what happened initially when he went to Utah, and it turned out he did quite a bit for them, and he had more left than I realized, but he is fading. Um, And I think, you know, a pretty small role for a very, very good team uh, is what he should be looking for. Um, so I think that makes sense. I mean, if I was Cleveland, I'd be trying to get in on Joe Johnson too. I mean, that seems like a very LeBron, uh, you know, pet type of player, uh, you know, just pick up and shoot space. Um, and then, you know, I think Miami too, potentially, right. I mean, he, he was there for a while. Uh, I could see them being interested in, in bringing the band back together for a playoff run and, and him having interest in sort of a low pressure, you know, fun place to play where, you know, where he enjoyed himself previously. So, um, he got bought out to Miami once. So, you know, why not twice? 
Are you enamored with anyone else on the buyout market? No, and I saw way too many Kendrick Perkins tweets today, Andrew. Way too many. I mean, <laughs> that was another reason I loved the Cavs day. So don't rain on my parade, man. I'm I'm really happy to have Kendrick Perkins back in the league, back in the mix uh, as a twelfth man, scaring the shit out of people. It's gonna be fun to have him involved. I understand he will bring an element to playoff atmosphere in terms of like you know bench antics but it has been so long (laughs) yeah it's been so long since this guy mattered andrew years and years and years and yet we saw just a flood hundreds you know dozens of hundreds thousands of tweets today about kendrick perkins just kind of made me slap my forehead so not that he's a buyout guy but you know one of these end of the bench things yeah essentially uh, you know i don't know same class yeah well, what about this whole Channing Fry to Golden State thing? I mean, if you're Golden State, do you look at Fry or Johnson as an upgrade to what you've got currently? I, I mean, given Fry's personality, I could see like him certainly fitting into that Warriors vibe, uh, you know, without a doubt. Um, yeah. And then Johnson's skill set, I think he'd fit too. And uh, so I don't know. I, I think you know, if you're Golden State, you had a quiet trade deadline, but I wouldn't just punt this all the way to the the playoffs you know i would be aggressive and and active you can get get guys on the super cheap here because their bench has been kind of you know so so and and kerr is always you know doing all of the different things that he does but um you know sometimes they look shallow out there and that's not something that we could say about golden state say last year or the year before yeah we got to get to golden state at the end actually my only buyout take is that i really don't want Derek Rose to end up in Minnesota and it seems like that's probably inevitable but I I think someone needs to intervene and kidnap Tibbs for the next 72 hours to keep that from happening if only because I've started to really enjoy this Wolves team and I don't want Rose thrown into the mix to potentially screw up the chemistry like Tyus Jones is is pretty solid as a backup point guard they don't need Rose and I don't understand why everyone thinks that this is like a good idea or something that should be allowed to happen. Yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, if Jimmy was on that LeBron level of like yeah, flexing totally. or, or behind the scenes, this is where all sorts of stuff would be getting leaked so that that, that reunion wouldn't happen because I don't <laughs> think that's in uh, Tibbs' best interest. I don't think it's in the team's best interest. It's certainly not in Jimmy Butler's best interest to kind of go back to that, uh, you know, that pull and pull, uh, push and pull environment that they were dealing with, you know, sort of after Rose's injuries in Chicago. Don't do it, Tibbs. Resist the temptation. You you must be able to look the other way and just ride with who you've got. Yeah. If we have any listeners in Minnesota, please head down to the Target Center. I believe it's called the Target Center and just pick it outside to keep this from happening. Um, But let's move on to the Knicks here. Ned says, as a Knicks fan, I'm basically dead inside to begin with. But with KP going down, I am now really dead inside. As bad as it is, it finally means that the front office will stop thinking that they're a fringe playoff team and let the tank begin. More so to the point, what implications do you think this injury will have on contract negotiations? Porzingis is the best thing to happen to the franchise in God knows how long, but the front office has taken a steady approach thus far. Will this be an Embiid situation or maybe a Jabari Parker situation? What do you think? Great questions from him. I mean, first of all, he sent this email prior to the Emmanuel Moutier blockbuster. So, you know, we got to check his temperature. Andrew, his mood could have turned from frown upside down. I mean, it's Absolutely, very possible man. that the, the, the new savior is there in the Big Apple. Um, I think 
first off, he's correct. I mean, this is going to, you know, this should be a tank the rest of the way. And you just throw Moutier out there and that's going to solve that. So, you know, no problem. <laughs> just That was play my him take lot. on the Moutier thing. <laughs> I honestly think that that helps them and it, it sort of supercharges the tank over the next couple months. That That shows that they're dedicated to really running this thing into the ground as, as the lottery approaches. Yeah. So just as a reminder, you know, the Nuggets were plus 4.1 when Moutier was off the court, minus 8.6 when Moutier is on the court. And the Nuggets have a lot of good players. So that is a real drag. So you put him on the Knicks roster, that minus 8.6. Oh, that could balloon real quick. That could be minus 14, 15. It could get really beautiful if you're a fan of tanks. So uh, you know, subtle, stealthy move by the, the Knicks front office <laughs> to run this thing into the ground. There's no laughing about this Porzingis injury, man. And, and we talked yeah. about how DeMarcus Cousins sort of blows up uh, in so many different ways what was happening down in New Orleans, whether it was his, his own uh, earning power, whether it was their playoff chances, you know, whether it was their just direction, ability to keep Anthony Davis and all that. I mean, this is as bad as it gets for the Knicks. I mean, he was the whole show. Everything was going to be built around him. I mean, he needed the development. I mean, time and again this season, we said, look, he made the leap to an all-star level player, but he has a lot of work to go, you know, a lot of work to do. He's got to figure out how to be uh, a much better, you know, passer, a much much less one-dimensional guy where he just looks to score, score, score. He needed to step up in terms of his rebounding. Excellent shot blocker, obviously, but he could be sort of a, you know, a better overall presence. Uh, and then uh, just diversifying, you know, what he's able to do as a number one option and getting those reps. All those things are really, really important, not only for him, but for New York's, you know, next three to five year window. That's all on hold right now. So that is rough. In terms of the question, is he Jabari Parker? Is, is he Embiid? I think he's in that Embiid, Embiid category because all, you know, all he has to do is follow that playbook of, you know, making noise about, oh, I'm not ready to return yet, you know, during mm-hmm. the contract negotiations. And, you know, you walk your way straight into the max that Embiid got. So to me, they're going to still have to max him out. They, they should still want to max him out as early as possible. Uh, but you're doing that in a, a much less confident manner because you're realizing that some of the minor stuff that he was dealing with health-wise earlier in his career has now been exacerbated by a major knee injury uh, on a seven-foot-three body. Yeah, man. I mean, I think he's quietly been in the Embiid category for longer than a lot of people wanted to admit. I, I, I know this in part because I traded for him onto my fantasy team earlier this year and began following the Knicks closer than I ever have. And I came away with two conclusions. First of all, Jeff Hornacek is not the guy in New York. He makes a lot of puzzling decisions at the end of games. Second, though, Porzingis it, it would go down with a nagging injury every two weeks or so and would miss a couple games. And it just was like a cycle that was pretty concerning. I mean, he was he was exhausted. He was talking publicly about how tired he was. And a lot of this is just stuff that makes you wish he were with a more competent organization because I feel like, you know, even you could say a lot of things about the Sixers, but they at least have had a strategy with Embiid and keeping him healthy over the last few years. Um, they've sort of started to deviate from that this season, which is its own thing. But the Knicks didn't really have a strategy with Porzingis and didn't really admit that he w- that his health was an issue. And we're still kind of playing him 34 minutes a game and, and throwing him out there. And uh, I think that 
it's, it's a strike against the Knicks, and I'm also worried about the future of Porzingis because it just it, he's had all these all these nagging injuries, and even aside from the ACL, like he he would be a concerning player to trade for. Put it that way. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't be super thrilled if the Wizards traded for Kristaps Porzingis, which sounds insane, but it just seems like there are some real like ominous questions hanging there. Yeah, and that's why we have this comparison with the Cousins trade, right? Like, who would you want to be less? You know, if you're in New York, you've got nothing else. You don't even have like an Anthony Davis that you can say, okay, well, we still have these scrap roster around Anthony Davis, and he's still going to get angrier and angrier year after year, but at least we have something. If you're in New York, your plan right now is Moutier and Neil Aquina. Yeah, it's really, it's so (laughs) crushing. Great luck. (laughs) Because he's also been the only good thing about that team for so long and was really the only reason to watch Knicks games. But when he was healthy and producing, like Porzingis by himself made the Knicks entertaining and like a a top 15 league pass team. And like the first month of the season, he was on another planet and it was great. And so it just, it really hurts. And they've already won too many games this year to really be in the mix for a top five pick. Maybe they'll get lucky in the lottery, but like they're not going to crack that Sacramento Atlanta territory. Well, you never know with Moutier, man. He is the secret (laughs) weapon. But the other thing I'd say too is in terms of the ACL injury, usually you're like, okay, you have an idea of what this could lead. But one aspect of Porzingis being such an unprecedented player with his skill set and his body is that you kind of have to treat a major injury to that player as unprecedented territory. We can't just say he's going to recover from an ACL the same way a six foot three or six foot four guard would, right? Yeah. And you would hope that a lot of his skills, you know, being able to shoot over the top of the pe- uh, people, his craft and his shooting motion in terms of being able to pull up off the dribble, uh, you know, his versatility, being able to step outside, you know, play inside a little bit, all of those things would still be there uh, after an ACL, but you just don't know. And, and some of the things that we've seen, like the freakish alley-oop finishes, uh, you know, running at full speed in transition, uh, some of the crazy chase down blocks where he goes from the free throw line to the rim in a, a second and a half. I mean, is he still going to be able to do those kinds of things? I don't think we can know that, Andrew, because we've never seen a player like this go through that injury. Uh, and I think that that would be really what unnerves me if I was a Knicks fan. It's like, oh, God, um, you know, is this going to alter him or impact him more than it might uh, a different type of player? Yeah, it would be really cool to see them get a competent coach in there who can spend the next couple years crafting an offense that like doesn't expose him to as much contact as as this one did because it really was it was kind of just a mess with the Knicks and and everybody was sort of freewheeling and uh I think if you put Porzingis on the perimeter and try to try to minimize some of the like high impact moves it can work better than it has and and allow him to protect the rim on the other end I think that's the play, but we'll see whether it actually materializes. For now, hey, thoughts and prayers to Chris Dapps, thoughts and prayers to Knicks fans. Moutier's got this the rest of the way. He's, he's driving the tank. Let me ask you this, though. It's a quick draft question, but if you're seeing Porzingis now go down, uh, you've seen Embiid have these health issue, issues, and you're looking at this, this crop of you know, a lot of talented, unicorn-style big man coming up in the draft, and then you're also looking at Trey Young, does this change your thinking a little bit if you're just a random GM? You know, I mean, that is a big part of the calculation, right? Not only how important is a big player uh, in the NBA, but like, should you be scared off by, you know, potential health concerns or 
uh, should you look at, you know, getting a lead guard uh, who maybe will be able to avoid some of that stuff just because of the way the, the NBA game is going right now? Uh, does this shift your thinking at all? It's a really good question. I think, I mean, I don't think it really applies to guys like DeAndre Ayton, uh, who is, I think, a flat seven feet or seven one maybe. And it's weird, but historically, the extra couple of inches has made a difference. Um, and it, Mo Bamba, I think, is is closer to like the Gobert, Chris Stapps category of, of seven three freaks. Um, but I haven't studied these numbers closely, so I could be wrong. But Gobert is another guy who has had nagging injuries almost every year of his career. So you, you're right that it should factor into decision-making. I, I think it probably won't. And I, I've thought about this a lot. I think one of the reasons a lot of NBA teams will go big in the top three is because there's just a much higher floor for those guys. Like there's no chance that DeAndre Ayton comes into the league and isn't above average for at least 10 years. Whereas like there's a much wider spectrum of outcomes for uh for someone like trey young but like look you're preaching to the choir i'm ready to take trey trey young number one so you don't have to convince me wow well we buried <laughs> I, this lead forget uh, yeah, about the I trade mean, talk earlier come on yeah it's look it's trey young or Doncic. i don't really like any of the big men i would i, I like mo bamba the most of the three um should we finish off with some warriors though please Okay, so I want to read an email that I got from a Wizards fan who reached out to me after the John Wall trade talk, and he was he was pretty annoyed with how hard you were pushing for the John Wall trade. We don't have to address oh, that on. now. <laughs> but he issued a response, and he said he, he wanted me to, to, to jump you. I'm not going to jump you, but he said, tell Ben that while he may have thought you weren't listening to the August 10th pod while you were traveling— he hosted Kevin Pelton to discuss win projections for this season and tell him that actually you were listening and that you were listening particularly keenly at minute 13 when Kevin said that the Warriors will go 62 and 20. Tell Ben that you recall his response to this prediction, which was asking Kevin Pelton whether he watched basketball. So Ben, the dispassionate king of advanced statistics, passionately veered from the numbers to claim that the Warriors couldn't lose 20 games. After this weekend, sure enough, the Warriors are on pace for 19 losses. And that was before the OKC loss. So what do we make of how screwy this Warriors season has been? You don't have to take responsibility for the Kevin Pelton trolling. But what do you think, man? Well, first of all, to this fan, this guy who emails you, I, I didn't see his email. So, you know, he's, he's ducking <laughs> me. But This is from, this is from all, Joseph, and he hit me up individually to try to catch you off guard joseph first of all andrew is benedict arnolding you okay he wants <laughs> the john wall trade even more than i do he's floating it through me because he's afraid to say it publicly <laughs> because of his standing in washington dc i totally get it i'm just trying to help convince him and and help convince naive Wizards fans who don't want to be stuck in this four or five seed window for the rest of John Wall's gigantic contract. I mean, do you want to pay $45 million for 45 wins here in a few years? No, you don't. You, know you don't what? want to have anything to do with that. <laughs> so first of all, that's number one. And okay. Andrew knows it's true and, and we're not even going to let him rebut. Number two, I did sarcastically quip at Kevin Pelton about the fact that he might not watch basketball. And 62 seemed low at the time. Uh, they're cruising, 
at this point, and uh, this is why I've been kind of complaining about the Warriors all season long. They've been in fourth gear the whole way. It started off really early. They blamed the trip to China, and they blamed uh, the early start to the season and all that, but they're just looking for reasons to jog and be bored, and that's always frustrated me about Golden State. This is a team with talent to win 70 games, which is sort of what I thought would happen uh, at the beginning of the season, and they're not getting there, and they're not responding to challenges either. Like, Oklahoma City challenged them, and they had already beat them earlier this season and they came out and challenged them again in, o- in Oracle and they didn't respond. They didn't even really care. They're willing to go shot for shot. They're not really trying to lock in. You know, Draymond's all over the court bleeding, you know, chasing after Lauren Holtkamp as if he's been like completely aggrieved in the worst possible manner. It's play basketball. And we saw the same stuff from the 73 win Warriors. It drove me nuts. I thought they got their comeuppance in the finals. Um, and, you know, apparently not. I mean, they came back and won the title, but they're still falling into a lot of the same problems. You look at your favorite player, Stephen Curry, some of the most atrocious turnovers we've ever <laughs> seen are back, uh, yep. you know, just getting and getting blown up defensively, frankly, in that game <clears throat> as well. So I would like to see this team, you know, get a wake-up call. And what I'm really hoping from this trade deadline, Andrew, is that the new-look Cavaliers inspire them to lock in a little bit more because they're different, because they're not such a faltering organization. I think part of the reason why Golden State has been so lackluster this year, in addition to all the miles and all the games and all that other stuff is they smacked Cleveland twice and it wasn't hard, you know? And, and I think when you have that level of confidence against the team, you're presuming you're going to face in the finals. uh, You know, why are you going out there and gunning in six gears? So uh, that's my response, but you know, the John wall stuff is the most important stuff to take away from that. (laughs) Don't, don't let Andrew front like, oh, I'm some crazy person oh. out here. Like that's that is unacceptable. I like how you're claiming that I betrayed Joseph, and so in in so doing, you're betraying me and and the trust between us and and our text messages. I it's all good. It, we we'll just move hey. on. Uh, Look, (laughs) first of all, everyone knows, longtime listeners know, the trust was out the window at the Jordan meeting when you made it very clear to everyone that I was voting Harden for MVP. From that moment forward, all bets were off. Backstabbing has commenced, and that's what we do here on Open Floor. I deserve it. I deserve it. There's no question about that. Uh, As far as the Warriors, you mentioned it. You mentioned how OKC manhandled them in that first game, and also... OKC is typically a team that the Warriors delight in dominating. Um, I mean, certainly last year and and just over the years, like aside from the first half of that conference finals, like it, Golden State generally loves to humble Russ. Um, and maybe it's most most of it was last year. But bottom line is, I expe- I tuned into that game expecting the Warriors to be up twenty midway through the second quarter and me to go to bed. And instead it was basically OKC taking out of taking them out of everything they want to do and just kind of once again looking like a team that can actually hang with them, which is it which is crazy, but the same thing has happened in the Houston games as well. And so I don't know. I don't want to worry about the Warriors, but I'm also Part of me is a little worried about how no one is worried about the Warriors, if that makes sense. Like they've been losing to good teams, and um, and they don't look quite as unstoppable as they did a few years ago, and uh, or, or even last. Well, let year. me offer you a, let let me offer you a compromise. You don't have to worry about the Warriors, but just get your side saddle going, get up here on my high horse, and no, just I'm be not, annoyed by, by their the bad. Rockets. 
no, 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 no. I'm saying you just get up on my high horse with me, side saddle, and uh, we could just be annoyed at the Warriors' bad habits. We can expect more from a team with so much greatness. That's not worrying. It's uh, yes. it's slightly different in the same vein, and it's sort of like a you know a compromise halfway there. Yeah, I, I think it should be. Uh, there are two things that should be slightly concerning. <laughs> We're not going to rise to the level of worry, but look. We've been over this. Draymond has really not been locked in for most of the year. And he's still great even when he's playing at 70 to 80%. But I think as we're seeing, to beat some of the best teams in the league, they're going to need Draymond to be at 100%. And hopefully he's just sort of like coasting and and it's more of a mental thing. But it it's entirely possible that four years of playing center as a 6'8 guy is going to wear on him physically. And that's what we're seeing. Um, and yeah. the, the, the other well. thing, look, <laughs> probably not real. Again, we don't have to worry, but it's just, it's out there. It's a possibility. And then no, the other thing. I'm just thing, saying, it, that feels like a real scapegoat. You know, like if Steph has a bad game, let's blame Draymond. I mean, that really feels like what you're what you're doing here. No, that's possible. I mean, but it it's also weird that Steph has been, not. I don't want to say inconsistent because he's like consistently at a B plus level, but it's harder to, to see him at the A level in some of these games. Um, and the other thing that is a real issue is their bench is full of guys who aren't really helping right now, whether it's Patrick McCaw, whether it's guys like Kevin Looney. Uh, I mean, Andre Iguodala is another one who's just been kind of a zero for most of the year. And so maybe none of that will matter in the playoffs, but it, there's a possibility that like, Golden State is more vulnerable than anyone realizes. I mean, that's fair. Uh, I still think that their ceiling is a lot higher than yeah. people realize too, because people forget about sixteen and one. You know, and that team was absolutely ridiculous, and it's the same cast of characters in you know during last year's playoffs. And the competition um, has gotten better in some cases, but overall, I wouldn't say it's, you know, demonstrably better in terms of how tough it's going to be for them to get through the uh, the postseason. I mean, they're going to sweep in the first round, right? Can we agree on that? Yes. No, look, this is oh. actually the perfect place to end the trade deadline podcast is that like the bottom line is the Warriors are still definitely winning the title. You're right. Uh, but there are, there are concerns here that people could pick on if they wanted to freak out. Yeah, I think Golden State's worst case scenario in terms of vulnerability is they have to face Oklahoma City, Houston, and Cleveland. And then just stuff happens along the way in that grind where, you know, a series gets away from them or, you know, somebody gets hurt or, you know, whatever it might be. I think that's sort of their worst case scenario, but more likely they're going to sweep, sweep, beat Houston in six and then still be better than Cleveland. So I don't think we need to, like I said, don't go all the way to worrying, you know, just join me here. And in as the annoyed for the Cavs, category. look, as for the Cavs, Cleveland's title came today, you know? So congrats to Kobe Altman. Congrats to LeBron James getting a new lease on life. Congrats to Rodney Hood being 200% more relevant than he ev- ever has been in the NBA. Uh, I'm excited for some Larry Nance on national television. Let's do it. And cr- congrats to us for closing in on 1,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> guys. We love those five-star reviews. Keep those emails coming openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com Andrew, until next week, I'll talk to you. Alright man, take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. 
Warriors fans search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.